Thank you so much. You can be seated. And I uh, want to just go ahead and open up with verse 16 in Romans 1. We're going to jump right into uh, about halfway through Romans 1. Now, it's talking about the gospel. And Paul is going to show us two things. This is very important. That two things are going on simultaneously all day, every day, day and night. The righteousness of God is being revealed and the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, the righteousness of God is being revealed through the gospel. We're going to see that in just a moment. And the wrath of God is being revealed because of sin. So those two things are happening simultaneously all day, every day, night and day, 24-7, 365. Okay? Now, those that are saved are not experiencing the wrath of God. They're experiencing the righteousness of God. But to reject Christ and reject God and spurn His Word and spurn His gospel is to be under the wrath of God ongoingly until you do come to Christ. And when you do, then the wrath is taken off because Jesus took the wrath on the cross. But it's only good for people who believe. It only works for people who turn to him in faith. And so we're going to see that now. Notice what Paul says about the gospel. It is what everybody, read it with me, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, how many of you are glad that you heard the gospel? Wasn't that a great day? And, 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 and um, man, the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old has passed away, and not some, not part, not most, but all is become new. Powerful. So the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who does what? Who believes. So Jesus died for the whole world, but the whole world's not going to be saved. Only those who repent and turn to him, only those will be saved. That is the gospel. But boy, when you turn to Christ based on the gospel, it becomes the power of God. The apostle is very clear that the gospel is not simply a display of God's forgiveness for sin. That's not all that it is. But the gospel brings with it total deliverance from the results of Adam's sin. So you're not just forgiven. But let's look at what else the gospel brought to us. First, we are, can you say the word with me? justified. Now preach it like you mean it. Justified. You know what justified is? Just as if you never did it. That's what justified is. It's just as if you never did it. And isn't that the beauty of the blood of Jesus? It's just as if I never did it. I don't have to do penance. I don't have to crawl on glass. I don't have to whip my body. I don't have to do any of those things because Jesus paid it all. So I'm justified, which means deliverance from the penalty of sin, being set right with God. We're never going to have to answer for our sin. We're never going to have to stand before the judgment bar of God and have God reveal our sins to us and then pay for those sins. Because when we came to Christ, we allowed him to pay for them. Jesus paid it all. I owed a debt. I could not pay He paid a debt he did not owe. 
All right? So justified means I'm never going to have to answer for it. I'm delivered from the penalty of sin, which is ferociously terrible. Eternal hell. And I've been reading up on that. Hell is real, or Jesus was a liar. It's there, and it's horrifying to think of, and I can't wrap my mind around it, but it's there. And Jesus warned of that place more than any person in the entire Bible. So justified, first by the gospel, we're justified. Then we are sanctified, which means deliverance from the power of sin. Justified, delivered from the penalty of sin, but sanctified, delivered from the power of sin. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay? So we really do, in Christ, have the power to say no to sin. We have the power through the Holy Spirit, the power by the grace of God, to say no to sin. The lost person can't do that. They are bound and chained to sin until a stronger than the strong man comes and sets them free. And that stronger than the strong man is Jesus Christ. And when he sets you free, you're free indeed. And you don't have to live in sin anymore. You don't have to practice. You don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. So sanctified means delivered from the power of sin. And then once more, the last one, glorified. So watch this, everybody. We're justified. Say with me, justified, Justified. sanctified, Sanctified. glorified. Ooh, you could go preach tonight. You could go off to a restaurant and preach tonight. Because you've been glorified, which means deliverance from the presence of sin. Thank God for that. I'm delivered from the penalty, delivered from the power, and delivered from the presence of sin. Thank God for that. I'm transformed into his likeness. God makes all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And what is that purpose? Being conformed to the image of His Son. And He makes everything bow to that purpose in your life and mine. So, here we go again. Say it with me once more. Justified. Justified. Sanctified. Sanctified. Glorified. Glorified. Give the Lord a hand. Isn't that great what He did with the blood of Jesus? Thank God for that. So what a wonder it is to come to Jesus by the blood and what he did for us on that incredible cross of Calvary. Thank God for it. Now, that's the righteousness of God that's being revealed day in and day out, 24-7, in the lives of those who have been redeemed. But what about those that haven't? What about those that don't know Jesus? What about those that have rejected him? Well, the wrath is being poured out 24-7, 365 days a year, and it manifests in many different ways. We're going to look at a few of the ways that wrath manifests tonight. Now, next, Paul talks about the wrath of God and his judgment on sin. By the way, do you know that Jesus said, he that believes not on me, the wrath of God abides on him? This isn't just Pauline, though Pauline would do, because Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself said, He that believes on me has eternal life, but he that does not believe on me has not eternal life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's what Jesus said. So Paul's going to talk about this wrath. And we don't like talking about wrath, 
especially in a PC culture where everything needs to be sloppy agape and greasy grace and love everybody and don't judge anybody and all this gut rot that's out there. <laughs> but there is a thing called wrath and I hate and judgment. And if God doesn't judge, then God's not God. If God doesn't judge sin, then He's not a holy God. So, look what it says in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Now, he's going to begin to tell us why the wrath is falling. So I want you to read this very carefully with me, okay? You're looking at it on the screen. Look at why. The wrath of God is ongoingly being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, he's going to begin now showing us what ignites God's wrath. First, the suppression of truth. Now, I've given you this illustration before. I'll do it again real quick because it works. You all probably had a jack-in-the-box when you were a kid, didn't you? I had a lot of them. Jack-in-the-box. A little clown pops up and and then bloop, up comes the jack-in-the-box. And what do you do when that head pops up? You push it back down and shut the lid on it. You are suppressing Jack. Because he wants to come out and you won't let him. Now that's what people do with truth, particularly God's truth and the truth about God. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Is our culture today suppressing truth? Oh, I mean, I've never seen a more concerted effort to suppress the truth of God and truth about God. It's stunning. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, if it weren't so tragic, comical. Suppressing truth. Now, Paul is telling us by the Spirit of God that that is one of the things that begins to ignite the wrath. Look what he goes on and says. The Greek verb tense is, the wrath of God is currently and ongoingly being poured out on mankind. It never stops. That's, that's the verb tense. Now, Romans 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is a lengthy elaboration on this opening statement. The wrath of God is being poured out on the wickedness of men. All the way through chapter 3, verse 20, he's dealing with that fact. Paul states that the revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel and the revelation of his wrath are continually taking place at the same time. That is, God's righteousness is being revealed at all times through the preaching of the gospel of salvation. And God's wrath is always being revealed through his abandonment of man to the consequences of his sinful choices. Now, let's look at first. How does God reveal his truth? This is very important. Because people say, well, what about these people in foreign lands and in the deep, dark corners of Africa who have never heard the gospel? This is dealing with them right here. How does God reveal the reality of himself? Here's how he does it. He says in verse 19, Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now, I want you to catch that. It's very important that we understand 
God is saying here that through what he created, he personally speaks to every man. God has made it plain. I think the King James says God has revealed it. God has revealed it to them. Okay? That's talking about something that, you know, God's got somebody out there that hadn't heard the gospel. They're living in darkness. What does God do? He makes plain to them that he's there and he's real and he exists by the things he has made. For since the creation, in verse 20, this creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. He is invisible, but what he made is visible. Through God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, what does it say the last four words? Have been clearly seen. I don't care if evolution is taught. I think people walk out of there and go, well, that's cool. That gives me a good escape route since I don't want to believe in God or answer to him morally. So I can hang out of this evolution thing. But they walk away knowing that can't be. The proposition of evolution is preposterous if you sit down and think about it. It's preposterous. It won't hold up to logic. Take the Bible out of it. Let's just say I'm an agnostic out there and I'm honest with myself. I have, when I look at the, the, the unity of nature, the incredible complexity of all that is out there. Just start with the human cell or the eye. There is no way on earth that just happened. No way. And then, of course, we get more complicated and say, well, what came first, the heart or the blood vessels? Did the blood vessels evolve and realize that they needed a heart to pump the blood through them? And did they somehow cry out to evolution, give me a heart? And evolution decided to make the heart to pump the blood that goes through the veins. But what about the blood? The veins said, I need some blood to pump through me, to pump through the heart, so this body can stay alive. So, so evolution heard the cry of need and created blood. And on you go through the entire beautiful, stupendous, complex, profound creation and tell me that just happened? It's preposterous. It's ludicrous. So God says, what I made clearly testifies of me. Being understood from what has been made. You understand God from what has been made. Now, not everything about God. You need the Bible to really explain God. But you can begin with what he's made. So that men are what? Without excuse. Not one person going before God on judgment day is going to be able to say, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. God will say, you saw what I created and I made it plain to you. So you are without excuse. You saw the sun, moon, stars, animals, birds, fishes of the sea, the human body, the, all that I made, the trees, the foliage, the seasons. Uh, come on. He's everywhere. It's like looking at, a, looking at the Mona Lisa and not knowing who painted it. And you say, who painted that? And somebody's standing there going, oh, nobody, nobody. It just happened. Nobody painted it. You would say, come on, you think I'm stupid? You would say that about the Mona Lisa and all of this around us. 
Now, the lost pagan world, <clears throat> Paul argues, the lost pagan world had an opportunity to know God through his revelation of himself in nature. He's referring back. Now, I think he's also talking about the Roman world that existed when he was writing. But he's also hearkening back to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, uh, the Greeks. You can go back in history to civilizations that preceded Paul's day and the Roman world of his day. He's talking about all of them, pagan, who have rejected God. He says they all had an opportunity to know God through his revelation of himself in nature. And God, says Paul, has disclosed himself in nature. Man could even learn of God's eternal power and deity by observing what he had made. Okay, even his eternal power and deity, just by looking at what he's made. The refusal to acknowledge him or render thanks to him brought judgment. Three observations can be made here. One, God is the revealer and nature is the medium of his revelation. Okay, second, God's revelation in nature does not guarantee a positive response. I mean, look at these scientists who study the stars and walk away and claim atheism. How blind is that? Three, God's revelation of himself in nature establishes the minimal basis for every person's responsibility to him. Everyone will at least answer for the revelation of God in nature. Very, very powerful. And I told you my dad got saved one day uh, just coming in and out of the backyard and said to me, Jeff, it just occurred to me, there's no way that just happened. I've been witnessing to the guy for 20 or 25 years. I almost choked on my cereal. I said, well, what made you say it, Dad? He said, well, I was watching that squirrel in that tree. So a squirrel got my dad over me. But that's okay. I'm fine with that. Because later I was able to lead him to Christ as we drove in his car, he pulled over and we prayed. And I was able to lead him to Christ. So that was great. But the beginning of it was he saw the revelation of God in nature. Period. The message in Romans is that people may respond to God's revelation in two ways. In faith or by rejection. A simple yes or a no. No is the answer of rebellion, whereas faith is a response of trust and commitment. Now first... Now, God's going down. Now, we're, it's almost like we're going down a ladder. And he's starting out with the suppression of truth and refusing God's revelation of himself in nature. <clears throat> now we're going down the ladder further, rung after rung, okay? Next, arrogance is revealed in verses 21 and 22. He says, for although they knew God, notice that, they knew him. They knew he was there. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Now, notice what happened. Church, please catch this because I, I think of our country and, and I'm, just, I'm watching it unfold in front of my eyes. When you refuse to glorify God as God and even thank him for his blessing, you, it's like you turn a light off. It says they're thinking became futile. That means a rat on a, a hamster on a hamster's wheel. It's running, but it's getting nowhere. Futile thinking is you're thinking, but it's getting you nowhere. 
and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. They, their, their foolish hearts were plunged into spiritual darkness because they rejected God, His truth, and refused to thank Him or glorify Him as God. So they took a step down. They went down. And now they're walking around with hearts that can't see. And that's worse than eyes that can't see. Hearts that can't see and futility in their thinking. Great philosophers with high IQs getting nowhere. In other words, their philosophy doesn't lead them to God. The moment man refuses to glorify or to thank God, darkness creeps in. So I thank him all the time. Oh, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I do. I thank him all the time. And I glorify him as God. Although they claimed to be wise, they really were stupid. That's the word fool. Uh, the fool is moron. Really, that's the word from the Greek. Moron. So let's just put it this way. Though they claimed to be wise, they became morons. And they're running our schools now. At morons think moronically. Meaning stupidly. The claim to be wise drips. With, I'm wise. It drips with arrogance. I'm wise. I don't want God. I'm not going to thank Him as God. I'm not going to glorify Him as God. And I'm going to suppress His truth. And I'm wise. It drips with arrogance. In rejecting the knowledge of God available in creation, people inevitably claim to be wiser than God. Now, and what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Now, I want you to notice something here. Idolatry followed the refusal to acknowledge God as sovereign Lord. You and I are hardwired to worship a God. For God wired us to worship Him. But if you reject Him, you are going to worship something. You are going to worship something. And so if you're not worshiping the true God, you're involved in idolatry because you are worshiping something. And anything other than the true God is an idol. So idolatry followed the refusal to acknowledge God. And notice the tragic decline in the idols they chose. At first they were worshiping man. The Greeks did that. They worshiped the human body, human strength, human athleticism. That's what the Greeks did. But then when you look at the Egyptians and the Babylonians and other more ancient cultures, you see that they worship animals, they worship reptiles, they worship birds, they worship snakes. The Egyptians did. Why'd they do that? Because you're going to worship something, and when your heart becomes darkened, you're going to turn to an idol, and you're going to worship something that doesn't talk, hear, feel, listen, answer. Now, when this happens, dear church, when this happens, when you or a culture, a whole culture says, I'm going to suppress his truth. We're not going to talk about God. We're taking him off of the public square, out of the public square. We're taking him off the school walls. We're taking the commandments out of our courthouses. We're not going to let our young people pray to him at graduations. We don't want any mention of him in public. We want the church to be off in a corner somewhere and do its own thing without coming into the culture. 
We don't want to hear about God, talk about God, glorify God, thank God. We want nothing to do with God. And they think he doesn't see it or hear it or know it or care enough to do anything about it. But Paul's about to show us that when you do that, the wrath of God begins to be revealed in three stages of judgment. God's judgment falls. And you read about it starting at verse 24 through 32. The first thing that happens is impurity takes over because we are told three times in Romans 1 that humanity made a tragic exchange. Okay? Look, here's the exchanges we just went over. So read it with me. The worship of God for idols is exchange number one. So I'm going to give up God for an idol. Exchange number two, the truth of God for a lie. Exchange number three, natural relationships for unnatural ones. Now here the culture is saying, I'm going to switch. I don't want the real God. I'm not going to worship the real God. I'm going to worship a dumb idol. That's the first exchange. Second one, I don't want God's truth. I'm going to suppress it. I want to embrace a lie. That's the second exchange. Third exchange, I don't want to involve myself in natural relationships. I want unnatural ones. Third exchange. <clears throat> For those three exchanges, we're told in Romans 1, three times the phrase is used, God gave them up, gave them over to their sinful desires. Now, I'm gonna, I'll bet you, I would wager, most of you, if I were to say to you, what do you think of when I say the word judgment? You think of Sodom and Gomorrah. You think of fire cascading down from heaven, striking a city, poof, it's gone, ashes remain, God judged. Or you think of the flood. God releases a mighty universal flood. Everything is drowned. Nothing is left. It's all wiped away. And you think of that kind of a cataclysmic event. And I used to too. And God does and can and according to the book of Revelations, will still do that kind of judgment. But the one that we see in Romans 1, a lot of people aren't aware of. And it's the judgment of God giving you up. I'm just reading the Bible to you. Each time they made an exchange, God said, very well, you, that's what you want, that's what you can have. I give you up to it. That's all it's saying. I want to go my own way. Finally, God says, really? Okay, go. And he lifts his hand, lifts his protection, lifts his hedge, and lets you go. Now, he'll do that with a person, and he'll do that with a nation. So each time, God gave them over their sinful desires. God, and he lets you go full bore into your sin. He does it with people, and he does it with nations. Now, here's the first one. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to what, everybody? Sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, this is not talking about homosexuality. The restraint of the Holy Ghost is taken, and he lets you go full bore into your sin. He does it with people, and he does it with nations. 
Now, here's the first one. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to what, everybody? Sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, this is not talking about homosexuality. This is talking about sexual promiscuity. Restraint of the Holy Ghost is taken, and He lets you go full bore into your sin. He does it with people, and He does it with nations. Now, here's the first one. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to what, everybody? Sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, this is not talking about homosexuality. This is talking about sexual promiscuity. Now, let me show you a little picture. In the 1960s, a paradigm shift happened in this country. In the 1960s, there was a revolution. It was a moral revolution. It was a philosophical revolution. It was a theological revolution. And if you were around back then, some of you weren't, but if you were, you remember how the sexual revolution was released full bore on to America. And people began to say, and three things really helped it. The Supreme Court uh, um, deciding on no-fault divorce. You don't need a reason. Just say you're not getting along, you can get a divorce. The release of birth control for all women who wanted birth control. Those were two of the major decisions the Supreme Court made. And when they made those decisions, they took away the restraints that normally and naturally held people back. The third one was abortion. And if the woman didn't get birth control or the birth control for some reason didn't work, hey, you just go get an abortion. So the three restraints that, that kept people in the Judeo Christian, if nothing else, the Judeo Christian uh, ethic and the Judeo Christian um, lifestyle, where there was a right and wrong, a good and bad, a moral and immoral, those restraints were removed by our illustrious, ever wise Supreme Court. I say that sarcastically because that's the way I feel. Because I think professing themselves to be wise, they were fools. So here you've got young women and men in the 60s, my generation, and they can go live promiscuously because now you get the pill. If the pill doesn't work, you get an abortion. And after all, what that one stupid song say of uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? If you can't be with the one you love, baby, just love the one you're with. Well, how dumb is that? Where's your girlfriend? Well, I can't find her. So you, hey, come over here. How dumb is that? But boy, we grooved to that and smoked pot to that. Thought that was just, and it was just stupid, moronic, ignorant. It's probably going to get better tonight. Just hang on. <laughs> now, the Supreme Court. So during the 60s, the restraints were removed. And there was a sexual revolution. Now, I personally believe that this first level, uh, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. The first level happened in the 60s, and sexual promiscuity swept the land. When it began, there were two STDs, syphilis, gonorrhea. Now there's 33, 34.
Now we're seeing the fruits of it in one generation. It took one generation. Now we're seeing that it wasn't liberty at all, but it was bondage. It wasn't liberation at all, but it was slavery. It wasn't liberation at all. But when we rejected God's word and suppressed his truth and wanted to go do our own thing, God said, go. Now we're reaping the fruit of it. We sowed the wind. We're reaping the whirlwind. Now, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Now, let me give you a principle. People are free to receive or reject God's revelation. You can receive God's revelation, or you can say, forget it. I'm going my own way. But here's what you're not free to do. You're not free to choose your consequences. You're free to go do whatever you want to do. Go for it. But you are not free to choose your consequences. There will be consequences when you go against God's Word. Every time. Verse 24 mentions the sinful desires of their hearts. When grace is lifted off of the human heart, only evil comes forth. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Where does that come from? The heart. And this whole lie that sits on our culture that man is naturally good is a lie. Because the heart is desperately wicked. Not just wicked, but desperately wicked. Who can know it? Without the work of grace on the human heart, you're going to live in sin, be shaped in iniquity, and die in your sin. Now next follows the second giving over on God's part. Now it says because they... here, Let's go back uh, where he said... And in it, there, there. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and created and served created things rather than the Creator. Now that's the second exchange. What did they get for the second exchange? The second giving over. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And how did those shameful lusts manifest themselves? Sexual perversion. Now, this isn't talking about sexual promiscuity. This is talking about sexual perversion. Okay? Now, before I go into this next part, I want to tell you, our culture right now, America, is in a breathtaking moral decline. It, it, some, there are days it just takes the breath out of me. It's not declining by the month or the week, or the day. It's declining by the hour. It's, it's a free fall. I mean, every day you wake up, there's been another step down the rung. We are not, we, we are not, because we're going to fix it, about to deal with homosexuality, we are not uh, um, evolving into a higher state by putting a seal of approval on what God calls sexual perversion. We're not, we're not evolving, we're devolving. And I say, well, where do you get that? I get that from the Word of God. Now, let's look. Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. Well, what's unnatural? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 27, in the same way, 
the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Now let me say that I'm not here to smash, beat up on any person. What I am here to do is reveal what God's Word says about this. Because God loves all people and all have sin. Whatever your sin, uh, pet sin, primary sin, major sin happens to be, any sin will get you to hell. And so, but because there is such an assault on our minds and on the mind of our culture about this topic, then we must see what the Word of God says about it. And that's what I'm here to do tonight. I love everyone. I do. And I want to see everyone freed. But look what it said. He's clearly talking about lesbianism and homosexuality. He says, the men also abandoned natural relations, natural, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and receiving them in themselves, in their bodies, in their person, the due penalty for their perversion. So Paul is saying there is a price that is paid within the body and the person of the person who involves themselves in this particular lifestyle. And I could bring out all kinds of stats and scientific figures that can't be argued to show the lower uh, 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 death rates and the high level of diseases and all kinds of things that go with this lifestyle. Now, notice the adjectives that God uses to describe same-sex sexual unions. Here they are, unnatural, lustful, indecent, and perverse. Perverse meaning that which was not intended unnatural. Paul describes this sexual impurity as degrading their bodies with one another. Now, this is what the Word says. Now, if you put me on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, any of those, and let me read this, I wouldn't get to this verse before they had stoned me to death. And we would be called backward, bigot, haters, ignorant, stupid, unevolved, uh, all kinds. They make up words for us because of a moral conviction that comes from the Bible. That's it. These passages make the following observations about homosexuality. One, homosexuality is an abandonment to shameful lusts. Two, homosexuality is unnatural. Three, homosexuality involves indecent acts. Fourth, homosexuality is sexual perversion, and it results in a serious breakdown for those involved in it. That's what it says. Now, my book is the Bible. I'm called to teach the Bible. That's my textbook. I'm teaching my textbook. This is what the book says. Now, we say that our book came from heaven, inspired by God, who was the designer 
of you and me and of male and female. Can I take you back to Genesis where God created man? He saw that he was alone, said it's not good that he's alone, so I'm going to make him a help me for him. So he put him to sleep because he would have messed with it being a man. So he had to knock him out. Shut your mouth for a minute. Be still. He opened him up, took out a rib, made the woman from the rib as the one who would be close to his heart. Then he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that's the way the designer made it. Just like a car is made to use gasoline, not sand. And if you decide, well, I don't like the gasoline idea, I'm going to use my own idea. You go right ahead. We will be ready with a tow truck to come get you. Because the way the designer made it is the way it's supposed to be used. There was a designer. His name was God, the maker. And he made man, woman, and said, they shall be joined together male, female, and the two shall become one. Then Jesus in the New Testament quoted Moses out of Genesis and said, have you not read? Don't you know that in the beginning God made them male and female? He hadn't been asked a gender question, but he gave a gender response. Have you not read God made them male and female, not male and male? If it would have been better for there to be an Adam and Steve, if they would have gotten along better, that's what God would have made. But he didn't make Adam and Steve. He made Adam and Eve. And I'm not trying to be funny. God knows best. And if God thought two men together would be best, that's what he would have done. Now, that's what he would have done. Now, I'm just quoting Genesis. And, I, and I'm trusting and, and, and leaning on my understanding of the character of God. God doesn't make mistakes. So he said, Jesus said, have you not read God made them male and female? And then he talked about, quoted Moses saying, the, the man shall leave his father and mother, the male, and shall be joined to his wife, the female, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus said, have you not read? Now that was Jesus who was God. Now if you're having a problem with that, You've got a problem. As a believer, where are you getting your theology? I just want to ask you point blank. You say, well, well, Pastor Jeff, come on. Love is love. No. No. Because I could play all kinds of games here. I could bring up a man here who is in adultery, and he can say to me, but I love her. Love doesn't sanctify wrong. Are y'all with me now? Follow me. Follow me. Love doesn't sanctify wrong. It would, be, it, would it be love for you to say to that man, well, if you love her, oh, God wants everybody happy. What about his wife? 
What about the kids? What about your testimony? Let's take it a step further. And I know this is gross. Stay with me. A guy comes in and he says, me and Fido here. I love Fido. Now you laugh when you open the door and you say, and you kick out God's original creation and his original intent for design. And you say, well, we'll do it on the basis of love. If I love, then that sanctifies anything that I do. That argument can be so destroyed so easily. When you open up that door, then you can do it with pedophilia. You can do it with bestiality. You can do it with any arena of human living life and contact. So there is a line, and God created the line, gave us the line in His Word. And if you want to reject it, you go ahead, but I guarantee you, it'll take about one generation. But when that generation is up, like we have just seen the results of the sexual revolution, now you give this current ideology, philosophy going on in our culture, same-sex marriage, two men, two women, you let it go a generation, that's when you'll see the fruit of it. Well, Pastor Jeff, you're just being mean. No, I'm not. I'm, no, I'm not being mean. And I'm not a bigot. I'm not a hater. Would I be a hater if I told the man living in adultery with another woman while his wife is at home with the kids, if I said to him, oh, you go right ahead, man. I understand. Go for it. You're in love. What would you think of me? Or let's take a thief. I was born a thief. He's in my blood. My daddy was a thief. My granddaddy was a thief. I was stealing when I was a little boy. I've never wanted to do anything else but steal. What would you say if I said to them, well, you're just born this way. Go be a good thief. <laughs> just go be a good thief. And, and may God prosper your way. What would you think of me? You would think I had lost my mind. Now, stop a minute. Why... Why? And all of those are moral issues. Theft, adultery, pedophilia, bestiality. It's all moral. So does love sanctify wrong? No. You know where it leads? Here's the third turning over and we're almost done. Everybody happy tonight? Y'all look real... I'm just trying to be very logical because our country, our nation can't, it's almost like, well, here's the third turning over, depraved reason. For a third time in five verses, Paul wrote that when people disregard God's revelation in nature, he gives them over to the normal consequences that follow. In verse 28, Paul declared that God gives them over to a depraved mind. So first you got sexual promiscuity. Then you're turned over to sexual perversion. And finally, you're turned over to a depraved mind. God says, go. You don't want any knowledge of me? Then go without me. And the mind is plunged into darkness. A depraved mind. <clears throat> Look what he says. 